All right. Before we start the show, I want to read an email that came in this morning, and it amuses me greatly. So here you go. This is from Elliot from Vancouver, Canada. Elliot writes, Dear Alex, my wife bought your book, The Adventure Teen All-Stars, for our nine-year-old, and I'm really happy I thumbed through it because it's definitely not for kids. I'm also happy I thumbed through it because it's so funny and so fast and so dark and so bloody. It's like Quentin Tarantino directing an episode of (laughs) Scooby-Doo. That's really good, Elliot. Thanks for writing such a great book. I'll let my daughter read it when she's 50. Yeah, this book is definitely not for kids. I know the cover makes it look like it is. It's a very kid-like cover, but don't be fooled by the cover. It's, uh, it's a book for, I don't know, teenagers. They can handle it. No problem. Teenagers and up. Well, Elliot, thanks for writing. I'm glad you liked the book, and I'm glad you spared your daughter what surely would have been, what, what would you call that, literary trauma. <laughs> How about that? All right, to the program we go. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. After the summer, find all the wells are drunk dry. Miles and miles of stubborn branded on the That is the music of Hex, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Donette Thayer. Let me tell you a little bit about Donette Thayer. Donette Thayer went west for college, and when the Colorado-born Thayer arrived at UC Davis with veterinary aspirations, she found a thriving arts community that she fell right into. She'd played classical music growing up, but suddenly found herself fronting alternative bands like X-Men. The Veil, and no matter what. She guested on Game Theory's Blaze of Glory and then joined the band full-time in 1986. She played on Lolita Nation and Two Steps from the Middle Ages before she left the band in 1988. That same year, she formed Hex with Steve Kilby of The Church and put out two marvelous albums with that band, the self-titled debut and the swooning follow-up, Vast Halos. Thayer put a solo album out called Chaos and Wonder and Then What? Well... I'll have her fill in the gaps for you and bring you up to date. But let me say this about Donette. Her voice is a breathtaking blend of beauty and finesse, and it swirls through her compositions with a beguiling and airy command. She's a marvelous musician and an absolutely lovely person. So let's meet her. Here we go. Me and Donette Thayer having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
I moved to Los Angeles for, oh, I guess about 15 years. And then from there, we moved to Canada. And I lived in Canada for about 10 years. And then uh, we came to Nebraska after that. And I like it here. I really like it here. It's uh, it's kind of a hilarious place to live. And just that alone is worth, you know, you can make a lot of jokes about Nebraska and everybody does. So it's uh, it's always worth it to laugh. And I was thinking about that in terms of creativity, which is what this podcast is about, right? Yeah, That's right. just such a fascinating topic. And I think it's just so timely that we're in kind of a, a renaissance period for creativity because of the kind of technology that we have. And, um, you know, I don't limit creativity to the arts per se. I think that you can be creative uh, if you're fixing a toilet, you know, or if you're if you're making a meal. All of these are creative acts, and uh, I just, and even like maybe writing the news, you know, yeah. <laughs> people can get yeah, pretty we're creative. We're seeing that. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I I see it all as a wonderful advancement of our species, and hopefully uh, it'll save us because we're looking at some crises coming up. So, how do you define creativity? You're the professor. Well. <laughs> I mean, I think anyone who's making stuff, um, I'm with you on plumbing to even for Katie Cox in Texas being creative and saying, I'll get the abortion somewhere else. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, deciding that healthcare in her home state wasn't going to do for her what she needed. Mm -hmm. um, so she got creative and left and did mm -hmm. it somewhere else or was doing it yeah. somewhere else. So I would agree with you. Mm. Um about creativity. I do think there is a guitar lurking in your background. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder about your relationship with music. Um, like, Are you, in terms of creativity, in really specifically with music, are you playing a lot? Are you, did you ever, did you stop playing? Do I you, did. It, you did? Yes, I did. Yes, I stopped. Um, and I, I basically raised my daughter, which was the most creative thing I've ever done, by the way, you know. <laughs> there we go, right. And, uh, but um, I just sort of lost, I, I didn't have anybody who wanted to play music with me really. And playing in a band in LA was, uh, you know, it was n not even really about being creative. It was about being, uh, money hungry and success hungry which i found daunting and i really i wasn't even having any fun so it wasn't any great loss except for my dear friend bruce who uh, played the drums for us and i didn't really see him much after we stopped playing but i loved the the songs that we did together and uh, i felt really good about them and what we did but uh, i wouldn't call it creative on a regular basis whereas here in nebraska um we just get together and we play music because it's fun you know and so i met my husband and he plays the violin he's quite a good violinist uh he was taught by one of the von trapp uh children to play wow. violin <laughs> yeah 
So, uh, or maybe she helped him buy his violin, something like that, but he oh. knew her. Anyway, um, he plays beautifully, so I just would accompany him and on guitar, and I we started playing, and so now we we just play music. We found a bunch of other musicians here in town who like to play, and they also know my stuff. It was funny. I'd been playing with this guy, uh, quite talented, um, and he kind of outed himself as a former fan. <laughs> or a current fan and uh, said I don't even tell any of my friends that I know you because I think they'd bug you and I you know it was, it was hilarious but uh, yeah so um, this this is a very progressive city in kind of a backward state. Does it make you think about the conversations that you have because I'm, I'm just outside of Berkeley and you can speak pretty freely, but I, oh, yes. but there are times where I look around and I think like, maybe I shouldn't have said that so loud. You just don't really know, <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. But that doesn't really stop me. I guess I, I've, my sister said that I had the social graces of a, or she used to call me a social Buffalo because apparently I'm not a butterfly. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, a buffalo is a fierce, hard-charging individual. Yeah, that's true. But they um, also go rampaging around and annoy people. And so that's, I think, was her point. I wonder about the idea of playing music without ego, for fun, with no record contract attached to it, with just a kind of centerless, joyful egoless experience that seems like the most pure way to play music um i now have this romantic idea that you and your husband like you know sit down and like in the living room and you know you play guitar and sing and he plays violin and it's very very quaint and lovely mm -hmm. um but for you having come from a, a world where ego was really attached to what everyone was doing um and I'm sure some people's egos were larger than others. Is it? Does it feel more pure now to play? Does it feel freer? You know, I think you really nailed it there. It does feel freer, and uh, you know, um, it, it it's much more rewarding. And I am not focusing so much on myself either, which is really nice. We generally play in a group, like a folk circle, where somebody will do a song, and then the next person will do a song, and so. This has always kind of been my bent. Um, I will look for ways to enhance whatever it is that somebody else is doing. And uh, and I have plenty of opportunities to do that in a, in a group setting where we're learning and, and just uh, playing all different kinds of things. And it's really fun. It's, it's very, this is something too that I noticed in Canada that's very common in Canada, that people will get together and just play music and you can't really go to a summertime party without somebody cracking open a guitar case and then everybody sings and uh, plays or plays some kind of hand percussion or something like that. And I just found that so charming and I never run across that in all of these music center type places where I'd lived before. Maybe I just was in the wrong social group or something, but uh, I hadn't seen it. so. 
that to me seemed very Canadian, but then when I moved to Nebraska, I found it here too. And uh, uh, I really enjoy it. What province were you in? We were in Alberta. So you were in Alberta. Because um, I, I remember I was talking to somebody from Newfoundland and, and, and he was saying that he believes, and I think it's true, that artists find each other and creative people find each other. You can move to a, a place that you feel there wouldn't be any art, but they're there. They're always hmm. there. And they do seem to to find each other. I'm happy to hear you say that it seems like the kind of through line for wherever you've lived has been this community emerges. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Newfoundland is an amazing uh, hotbed of of great music and creativity. And uh, I know a, a friend of mine just moved there to Wolfville to, mm. uh, I think that he's, and he, they play uh, the Cape Breton type music my husband plays that too, and uh, so it's uh, some of the stuff that he plays is just great. I mean, I have, I feel when I go to just a, somebody's house and we play what they call kitchen music, I feel like it's really some of the best shows that I've ever seen have been in uh, settings like that. It feels like those are more collaborative and more mm -hmm. community-based. Yes, and community, I think, is a really big part of creativity, if we're talking about creativity still. Um, we as a, I think that's one of our defining characteristics as a species is that we teach each other things. And sometimes they're not always for the best, but we do learn from each other and uh, and we, we move forward with that. So um, this is this innate human, uh, I think really positive aspect of our uh, of our species that is just really uh, sort of exemplified greatly by playing music together. I mean, if you think about it, and I I don't remember how I how I came up with this, but when did we decide that it would be fun to get different kinds of things to make different sounds and then make them work together in groups that can be huge you know mm. i mean what there are some animals that do uh kind of sing in a, a a choir and you know um i studied uh i just got a master's degree a few years ago studying lake sturgeon and uh i found out that they actually have some different ways of, of singing together not songs but vibrations they make and uh i just found that fascinating but we're the only ones who really figure out tools to make in music with which i find so fascinating how did yeah. we come up with that <laughs> it's a good question i know i know because it seems like the collaborative musical element of bats to dolphins to whales that seems very organized and specific but you're right like when did we just it's it's a it's a fair question and i also think that you know i always felt that there was a romantic idea to being the lone wolf mm -hmm. but someone pointed out to me that the lone wolf usually dies earlier than the ones in the pack right uh -huh. um, yeah. so i think of the lone wolf as like nick drake right it's i don't think being nick drake is sustainable for a person <laughs> you know to be that alone and to be that sad and um, 
not collaborating and writing these beautiful, painful songs in a, you know, that exist in a bedroom, really, um, mm. for lack of a better way of, of, of thinking about it. So I think there is something also that a community keeps creativity alive, but it also probably keeps the human spirit alive. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yes, I think that might be true. I think there's a place for the lone wolf. Uh, sometimes they're able to go places that we can't go as a group and and they lead us there. And I think that's a really necessary uh, characteristic to have as part of our overall group, our larger collective group. When you put music down, was it a conscious thing of like, I'm going to compartmentalize my life, put this away, raise my daughter, I'll get back to it or I won't. Like, did you consciously put that to the side or was it more? You know, I did. I was like, I'm not getting anywhere with uh, going constantly harassing record company people and begging people to come to shows and stuff like that and hanging up flyers. And, and I was just like, I did pretty well. I did all right. I'm happy with what I've accomplished. I, I think that the work that I did in Hex and uh, this, the stuff that I did with Scott in Game Theory, I think that's all really, really good stuff. And I'm proud of it. And uh, I was able to say, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's good enough. Did that feel bittersweet? Or did it feel like, did it feel good to kind of go, enough already for a while? It was odd, because I had spent so much of my life pursuing that goal. And uh, so to sort of walk away from it, but I didn't really feel like I had walked away from it. And maybe I kind of didn't. I, uh, I I just was much more interested in my daughter than pretty much anything else. So uh, it was it was like you do with a child. You you know I was distracted away from the object that I had been obsessed with before and uh, focused my attention on something new. So it was less of a loss than just a transition. The energy you put into the creative musical projects channeling that energy into motherhood um i'm sure you could power a large city with that energy right <laughs> a lot yeah <laughs> i came up with a few things like one of my rules was <clears throat> you're not allowed to beg for things in a store if you beg for things you don't get it you can make me a reasoned argument and uh and then you know i might i might get it for you but crying for stuff and that was that was so effective. I was so proud of myself coming up with that one because uh, she never did cry for anything. And all of these other kids were like throwing tantrums and stuff for little pieces of plastic. And, and she never did. But she would make some very reasoned arguments as to why she should have things. And she would almost always get them. But now she's an influencer on TikTok and uh, she's basically doing that same thing, telling people why they should believe one way or another, mostly um, trying to rescue us from the, the, the climate change issues that we're facing right now. And the, basically the, the dominance of capitalism over all of our lives. You must be immensely proud. I am. I really am. Yeah. 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 I love how you encouraged 
emotion second, discourse first. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, and that's so strangely uncommon. It's much easier to sophistry, uh, you know, is just so much easier and often more effective. But I really think that we need to. And I think that the the younger generations are learning how to spot that kind of thing and and not be taken in by it. So yay, the young people. Yay. Growing yeah, up I with know. the internet. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think that a young person with a good head on their shoulders um, can really take over now and make some huge changes. Um, because I'm noticing that people seem to be getting lost in the kind of irrelevancies that the phone and the iPad can sort of throw oh. at you. But if you use it for good, I think mm. you can make some incredible strides. Yeah, you must have a an interesting perspective. <clears throat> on that score being a professor so you watch a lot of young people come through and I don't know how long you've been doing that but have you seen much of a change in yeah I mean at, I'm at the point in my life where I can refer to things in increments of almost 30 years um so it's oh, been wow. close to 30 years I have seen incredible changes and I've seen a massive decline in literacy and oh, attention span oh, it's been no. yeah it's been shocking oh. um you know, it's literally, I, I made a joke to my students. I said, you know, put your devices away and they couldn't do it. And I said, it's literally like wrestling a crack pipe from you. Like, <laughs> I can't see, like, you know, literally just right back to it. And um, this one student at eight, eight o'clock in the morning class, it goes right to the phone texting people. And I thought, who's up at eight in the morning that you feel you need to text so urgently <laughs> at this point, you know? Oh, wow. So yeah, I have seen changes. And, I'm, and I, so I think that in many ways, I think the opportunity for a young person who is enterprising and intelligent and has great energy, I think they can pass most of their peers now. I, th I think it's mm. not that competitive. I think you can make oh, it wide open for someone to take over. I really wow. think that's true. Oh, what a that is an interesting uh, way to look at it. Because, uh, yeah, it's almost like people have been caught up in this eddy of, of uh, uh, you know, bouncing around things on their phone and so it's yeah that's unfortunate what did the another opiate of the masses i guess yeah and it's sort of like what um everyone was thinking that orwell was sort of right and thinking that you know we'll be watched but huxley was sort of suggesting you won't need to be watched because you're going to be just drowned in your own silly trivial stuff uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and I'm more inclined to think that he was correct. And so I think yeah. if someone has great energy and passion, um, their peers are mostly sleeping on the job right now. Now is the mm. time to take over, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, those are two amazing creative uh, minds there, Huxley and, and uh, George Orwell, both of them with really valid points. I think that we do have a bit more of a surveillance society than we used to. And also people are more concerned about surveillance. I mean, if you think about it, we come from probably a, anthropologically, we come from small tribes of just several dozen people at the most. So you probably know everything that's going on in that tribe. So to me, it's like if somebody wants to know what I'm buying at the grocery store or, or whatever, it's like that doesn't really bother me because I just, I see it, this whole privacy thing often is uh, 
And but then on the other hand, when they turn around and use it to try to, you know, the whole capitalist way that uh, capitalism seems to subvert everything to its own ends, that mm -hmm. I can see why people would want to have uh, their privacy. That's certainly something that would not have happened in a, in a you know, uh, hunter-gatherer tribe. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> that would, yeah, that would not have happened. Um, I used to present the idea of like, hey, we've noticed that you seem to be, you know, I'm, I'm vegan. And so if I look You're for a vegan? vegan, I am. Oh, my daughter's vegan. I'm just a vegetarian. Okay, so you so <laughs> if you're looking for vegetarian items and then they target you and go, oh, you might like this vegetarian item. My thought process is, I might, and I'll consider it, but mm -hmm. I but I I don't feel forced. Um, I know what you mean. It's like I still think free will is exists if you're conscious enough to kind of go, oh, I'm being algorithmed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll either ignore it or I won't. Maybe it's a good suggestion. Maybe it's uh -huh. not. Yeah. You know? How long um, have you been a vegan? Since I was 35, so probably pretty close to 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Vegetarian before that. How about you? Uh -huh. I've been a vegetarian since I was about 30, so 30 years. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, and my daughter, since birth, she just went to San Francisco to try some lab-grown meat. There's How'd a, she like it? She thought it was, she thought it was okay. It, she didn't think that it was anything special. I don't miss it. So I don't, I didn't really need a substitute. I'm like, yes, I'm good. I found that when I went vegetarian, my, my menu expanded dramatically because you, you're not uh, limited to the standard things that you always eat, you know, like uh, every day it's, it's some kind of meat and then potatoes and then some kind of vegetable, you know, but when you get rid of that, you've got to go out and, you know, find all different uh, ways to make a meal. And it doesn't, if you don't have that centerpiece of meat sitting in right in the middle, then you've got to figure out stuff like dal or, you know, uh, enchiladas or whatever, but it's, it's much more uh, a variety of food. It gets back to what you were saying earlier, it forces you to be creative. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, and so it did for me, I, I, you know, going vegetarian, I learned how to cook and I, so, and it was like my whole life kind of changed in, in that way. Um, there used to be a lot more vegetarians here in the Bay area. There's not as many anymore. Hmm. It's all been replaced well, by tech, you know, tech has sort of taken the arts community out of the Bay area. And so you don't get as much because um, a lot of artistic people seem to be, more vegetarian based, um, at least back in the eighties and early nineties. So yeah. they're it, all gone. Um, they had to move. <laughs> right. They got priced out of the market. <laughs> they got, they got, yeah, they got priced That's out. That's the way it always works though, isn't it? It's like you get the creative people there, the artists and stuff, and then it becomes an interesting, popular place to live. And then the rich people move in and the creative people have to move out. They have to move <laughs> out. You, I, you were originally from Colorado? Yes, Denver. And then yeah. did you come to California to go to college? Yes, I went to Davis and uh, I just always wanted to live in California. It's a mythical 
wondrous place to live and yeah. it was sure true when i went out there it was i left a snowstorm like a blizzard in colorado traveled through wyoming in a blizzard and then got to california and here's a little glistening pool with jasmine growing around it and it was like oh yeah that was the right decision <laughs> and you went to to an agriculture-based college um, yeah, at the time I had planned to go into veterinary school, so instead I just started playing music and it was so much more fun that I decided that was what I'd try to do instead. Yeah, the degree I ended up with was in some variation of epidemiology, back when they were calling everything different names. You know, uh, biology was attributes of living systems instead of biology. So I, my epidemiology was uh, health science administration. Yeah, it feels like music interrupted the the plan that you had for yourself, right? This sort of unexpected thing happened. Yeah, and it did. Your course. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it wasn't really my decision. My grandfather was a doctor, and I I thought, well, I'll try for medical school but I'll hedge my bets and see if I can get into a vet school if I can't get into med school and you know with like it was Davis I mean there was the talking heads there uh, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop um, the police playing at the coffee house a very small venue and it was just so uh, so thrilling to be in the same room with some of these legendary people that uh, I just could not resist trying it myself. And,
it was sort of a little it wasn't quite like UCSC or like, like Santa Cruz where it was that real revolutionary hippie thing but there was something going on at Davis I think that was really politically active and aware oh yeah yeah the first Earth Day I think was there so mm -hmm. that was one thing and the, the the education that I got there was just great too and so I was it kind of opened my mind up to a whole bunch of different things I took a class from John Laughlin. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he studied cults, cult behavior, and wrote a book called The Doomsday Cult about uh, the Moonies. Oh, I know that um, book. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. it's brilliant. And he was just a fascinating professor. And then another professor I had, Dr. Wandisford Smith, uh, talked a lot about, uh, he was an environmental politics uh specialist and so I learned a lot about environment and politics and how they interact and just both of them just scintillating professors so it had a huge influence on me and just the whole world opened up there in uh, Davis at the university something that you're probably doing too with your students I'm I sure it's true they might argue with you <laughs> um but Gary Snyder was there oh um, uh, yeah for a while, uh, for a Wayne long time. Wayne Tebow. Yeah. 
Yeah, there were a lot of really uh, impressive people there. Did touring in a band, being in a band, uh, getting on that whole thing that you did with a degree in your back pocket, did that give you security? Like, if this blows up, I'm covered. Did did you feel a bit of security? Because not a, not everyone had a degree who was in <laughs> bands, right? It was sort of like a lot of them let the bands would break up and they go back to school afterwards. Yeah, um, I I always worked. Uh, I had uh, jobs in chemistry. I had a lot of chemistry, and so I was always working as a chemistry microbiology person and I found that dichotomy to be really actually kind of rewarding because I would go and exercise my creative uh, self in the bands and then I would go to work and it was all objectivity and uh, you know you, you get the answer and it's either correct or it's not you know and that's never the case when you're doing something creative. So they balanced each other. And I, I really thought that was kind of nice. But um, I, having a degree, I think that that was, it was important to me to go ahead and finish the degree so that I would have accomplished it just to, to prove to myself that I could do that, finish something. Because I do tend to get started on things and then not finish them but that was one thing i wanted to finish yeah because it just seems to me that that the at that time period you know late 70s early 80s even all throughout the next decade you know the sort of the idea was like you really needed a college degree oh yeah for to be safe in the world right i mean sort of yeah. like i remember i wanted to be a dj uh, I want to go from high school to be a professional DJ. My, my, I remember my mom was saying to me, you're going to flip burgers or something crazy like that. Like <laughs> you're basically going to have no options if you do this, if you don't go to college. Uh -huh. um, we know that that's not entirely true, but the idea was that if you didn't go to college, there was some kind of failure, um, you know, so it, a lot of people in bands, like I was saying, they ended up have, going back later. Oh. Um, a lot of punk rock guys did that. I noticed they were like sort of secretly the band would break up and all of a sudden they were teaching chemistry at UCLA. And you're like, well, how did you, <laughs> what were you doing? They were secretly working on their degrees. Um, <laughs> but I would imagine that that dichotomy you're talking about seems really, I get how you're feeding both sides of the brain, but it also feels like it would be a little bit decentering in the sense that um, one is so performative and one is so quiet and so not insular, but sort of, right? Or more methodical and like you were saying, only one answer. Mm -hmm. um, but you actually were able to kind of go from side to side and it didn't cause any trouble for you in your in your head. No, I uh, I really got a chance to appreciate the objective nature of uh you know science and doing the work uh it was pretty straightforward and and then to go from there and release myself into the world of well do you like the bridge should we change that uh the melody there and there was no right answer ever and it, it was always a judgment call. 
so it gets a little tiresome always having to be restricted to some uh, set format in terms of the bench chemistry that I used to do. But it was rewarding because I could do it and, and it would always be right. And I could make sure that it was right. And if it wasn't right, I'd do it again until it was right. But with music, it was like, I like that, but you know, who knows if anybody else will. We just don't know. But there is, with music, there is also a sort of do it again till it's right seal. Yes, right? that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the practice that I had doing uh, music fed my ability to do it until I got it right in, in science and, and vice versa. So they're both two different disciplines, but both required a kind diligence. of... Diligence. Diligence. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the through line between the two. Yeah kind of interesting would you consider yourself an, an introvert or an extrovert oh you know uh i i cannot figure that out that's uh, <laughs> no one's ever said that don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I i behave like an extrovert but i think of myself as an introvert so i don't really know the answer to that question it's a tricky one because i think that i get what you mean and, that, and now what they're doing is they're calling that an ambivert oh what an ambivert. Oh, okay. Yay. That's what I am. That's what you are. <laughs> Thank See, now you. you know. Now I know. <laughs> like being ambidextrous, right? It's sort of like. Oh, okay. I get it. Oh, that's fascinating. You can be oh, both. I like that very much. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And See, and there's I... just such a joy to learning something new. I mean, that is, that is so wonderful. What a thrill. <laughs> I'm with you because I feel like an extrovert, but then I'm a writer. And so I can be incredibly quiet and withdrawn when I'm writing or when I'm thinking about writing. Um, but in real life, I suppose, I don't know about real life, but in public life, I guess I'm very extroverted. Mm -hmm. So I suppose maybe I'm an ambivert as well. Um, I know with the, when you take a band like Hex and you're front and center, um, there is a sort of like you can't you almost can't be the introvert who's in the back of a band or next you know with a group of people you're sort of you know you're the focal point um did that feel okay or because or did that did that feel foreign in this uh, moving into that position well in the studio i i did participate a lot but it was mostly steve writing the songs and he wrote many of the lyrics i wrote some of the lyrics uh, and melodies, but that was a very intimate type of recording. So I didn't really feel like I was uh, being extroverted there. And then when I did it live, I got a, a rather large band. So it was like, there were like six or seven of us. Mm. So I was really able to, and I was hiding behind my guitar too, which I always do. <laughs> and so, but uh yeah, I think that I think that extroversion as a I think it's kind of a skill and so I don't I don't feel like I'm naturally extroverted but I've had to learn how to be. How about performative? The idea that people are looking at you when you're playing. Um I think sometimes being in a band sounds like a really good idea and then you get on stage and I think some people are uncomfortable with being yeah 
gazed at, looked at, judged. Yeah. Sometimes fans can feel they have access to you that they really don't have, but they feel they have a kind of proprietary right over you um, where they almost like you belong to them in some weird way. I've seen that. I like that though. Do you? I really, I do. I think that is so neat. And uh, I, 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 uh, to be so intimately part of somebody's life that they would claim you as their own. I just think that is the highest compliment that you can pay somebody. Of course, I I am not up there in the league with many, many of your guests. So maybe oh. I haven't really experienced the the problem to the full extent that it could be experienced and become onerous. But it's still, uh, to the extent that I have experienced it, I have really enjoyed it. And uh, I've just met so many people that I adore that have been fans of my music. And I don't know if I'm just lucky because they tend to be really articulate, intelligent people, or if the only ones who remember it or ever knew about it already were articulate, intelligent people. <laughs> when you moved to from an indie to a more of a major label, were were there decisions and discussions about packaging and marketing that were foreign to you that felt um, that felt a little strange, or did you, did you embrace that kind of more corporate direction of the of the sort of the business side of things? Well, I was I was the one who was really doing a lot of the background work for game theory, so you know, contacting the record company, I booked one of one and a half tours. So the the business of of behind being a creative uh entity is uh certainly you cannot understate how important that is. And uh people neglect they think often people will think that all that's involved in writing poetry is, you know, just looking out at the beautiful world and coming up with these wonderful thoughts and it's not it's work it's hard work and uh the same thing is true and and you also have to get it out there right i mean as a poet you've had to make those kinds of decisions for yourself and your work and uh it's just an essential part of it and to to deny that aspect of it is to i guess doom your work to obscurity yeah it's a necessary element of it mm -hmm. how were your parents when you when you told them that you know i'm in this band oh I'm, they were thrilled they were okay they were supportive <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah my mom actually uh helped me pay for my first record that i self-published so yeah the original one the way way back that i try to forget I ever did but she was supportive and she helped me put it out there so you know it's all uh an iterative iterative process so I had to have the the preliminary work in order to get to the work that ultimately I'm really proud of did you ever suffer from an ego that you felt was getting to a place where it was getting in the way of your work or were you always pretty humble uh people tell me that I wasn't. 
but I always thought I was. Um, I, I think that I probably was like many, many young people kind of full of myself at one point, but you know, that's, that's part of uh, the, the trajectory of life. I think is you have to have that bluster to begin with, or you just don't ever attempt anything. It's risky. It's so risky and scary that if you don't have a certain amount of bravado, you just aren't going to go anywhere ever, which is fine. I mean, that doesn't mean that you're not living a creative life. Uh, I think that there are, like I said before, there are plenty of ways to fulfill yourself creative, creatively without having been in a successful band or or whatever. But I think that in order to have a successful career like that, you have to have the, the willingness to really uh, take some risks. And then there's the whole... Uh, impersonation thing have you heard of that this is common no. among really successful people they feel i don't remember i don't think i'm getting that right quite right but they feel like they are uh basically faking it and fooling everybody and like numerous really successful very talented people have felt like they are uh really just fooling everybody and are not worth uh, the kind of accolades that they get. Oh, imposter syndrome. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, imposter syndrome. Thank you. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have heard that. And yeah. I, I love what you're saying though, because I do think that, you know, Dylan at his spikiest, crankiest, um, and he's so young too, to be that cranky oh, yeah. is probably his most interesting. Lou Reed at mm -hmm. his most, you know, aggressively um, obstinate moments um, I'm sure, I don't know if you've ever seen that video of him just destroying that Australian journalist in 1975. He's I have, yeah. Awful. But you, <laughs> I've watched it a hundred times. Very uncomfortable, but really satisfying kind of in a way. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so weird, but you're right. I do think sometimes the ego is thought of in the pejorative, but I think you're right. Like you've got to, you've got to knock doors down. And in order mm -hmm. to do that, there has to be that. And I also think there has to come a point where you realize I'm not 21 anymore. I don't need to knock doors down. I might get a key made and <laughs> open the door. Um, and I think that there is something freeing about putting that to the side. Um, I know I have done that more recent. I'm embarrassed to say how recent it's been, but probably in the last couple of years, I've sort of shed the ego and it just feels really good not to mm. worry about those things anymore and just be a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember something in psychology, and I can't remember where I picked this up, but uh, the guy was talking about how we evaluate um, sophistication of behavior by the number of different ways that you attempt to accomplish something. So the professor went outside of the classroom and was knocking on the door saying, let me in, let me in. And and he's like, the uh, the first thing that he did was shout for somebody to let him in. And instead of like thinking of other ways, like saying, you know, FedEx or uh, slipping a note under. And so 
requisite variety of behavior is what that's called. So the more the more of that you have, the more likely you are to succeed. So maybe it's part of our learning process as we gain experience and expertise that we develop a a, a richer palette of behaviors and have a, a more advanced requisite variety of behaviors. So we don't just initially or or if you get into an argument with somebody you don't just punch them in the face right off the bat you know you you say well i kind of disagree with you and here's why and so i've found that to be fascinating and and i've worked all my life since i learned that on uh developing advancements in my requisite varieties of behavior <laughs> i just love that phrase i guess i love it too <laughs> But it also gets back to what you're saying with your daughter, where discourse, creativity yes. over emotion, figuring mm -hmm. things out, problem solving. Mm -hmm. um, I love that too. It's great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've had Steve Kilby on the show a couple of times. He's deliciously cranky. Um, oh, yes, he is. <laughs> was he always cranky, even back then? Uh, he, he, he developed a skill at it, really, and was funny. Uh, I, I found it to be humorous mostly, but me too. He was always very kind to me. And I don't know why I escaped some of that, but uh, I did. And, uh, but I would watch him with other people and he was just merciless and, <laughs> and really like uh, lacerating. So <laughs> But it feels like a bit like I like when I talked to him, he was crankier the second time than the first and the first time he was cranky, too. But I, it cracked me up. And he told me the second time he just told me how much he hates getting old. And, oh. you know, and I thought it was a very honest thing to say. But I will say about him is that he has just never put down the guitar, the pen, the paintbrush. He just keeps going. And yes, he does. Yeah, he's I really admire that. I admire the I fact that he's, yeah. you know. He was he was very honest about I think ego is still an issue for him, hmm. um, but he's just relentlessly creative. And I really, I, yeah, I find him. I'm glad you said that because I, I find the lacerating thing to be actually kind of hilarious. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one time at a show he said, uh, "All right, well here's the one that got the whole ball and chain rolling," which was an unguarded moment. <laughs> And that's just, oh, and uh, strike while the irony is hot was another thing that, I don't know if he got that from somebody else, but, you know, he had so many funny um, and really cutting things that, that he came up with. We were at a pool one time, and I guess somebody from the mission was there, and he kept on singing one of their songs really loud <laughs> in, in the kind of... Uh, grandiose way that I guess he perceived that they sang it so it was it was kind of funny that's the thing that surprised me about Steve when I got to know him was how funny he is I mean so funny. I was I was astonished because his work is fairly uh it's obscure and it's also can get pretty deep and I don't get much humor from it but then when you get him in person, he's hilarious. So it was a lot of fun to get to know him.
the work is very insular, very contemplative, very meditative, Ooh, exactly. it's way out there. And then mm-hmm. he's just this crank. <laughs> so funny. I think he's so funny. Um, did you maintain a lot of friendships from that sort of 80s alternative rock scene, even just the Davis scene? Are you still in touch with people? Yeah, quite a few, uh, surprisingly. And they all came back when we all got on Facebook. So before that, uh, I had kind of lost track of a lot of people. But this necklace, Shelley, who was the keyboard player from Game Theory, made for me. And um, I'm still in touch with, uh, of course, you know, Scott's gone and, and Gil died too. And uh, But I'm still in touch with his wife, Stacy, and Robert, who took all of the pictures of the band, is a very good friend of mine now. And so, yeah, they are, they are, I cherish them. And I'm surprised how much uh, they mean to me, given that I didn't really follow up on keeping in touch with any of them for the longest time. And and now they're really all of them very important part of my life. What was so cool back then is that you'd had these <clears throat> kind of Davis scene, San Francisco scene, Santa Cruz scene, all these different sort of campfires of cool people in these cities. And it was such a rich, fertile time where you think like the Donner Party, Camper Van Beethoven, you know, yeah. game theory, and and the list just goes on and on and on. It was just an endless number of bands, and it seemed like it would never, it would just never stop. And it was mm-hmm. just such a, an amazing, for me, growing up as a teenager in the 80s, um, it was just like an endless joy to find out all these yeah. scenes and all these people that were part of the scene. And mm-hmm. I always imagined everybody were pals. Well, we were, uh, you know, through some kind of convoluted relationships. I mean, I don't know a lot of the people from Camper Van Beethoven, but Shelley went to high school with Jonathan Siegel. And so I I kind of know him through her, but uh, I was here at a one of those, it was a Celtic music thing. And suddenly these two guys start playing, take the pin, take the skinheads bowling. And it was like, okay, yeah, that's really weird. <laughs> So uh, it's amazing how these things recur, and I was—I really enjoy hearing that. I had to write to them immediately and say, "Guess what, guys? <laughs> right, your your music is alive and well in Lincoln, Nebraska." <laughs> do you pick up that guitar behind you on a daily basis? Are you? Do you find? Yeah, pretty much. I do. Yeah, I'm playing a lot of just regular acoustic music. I guess it's called Americana which is just whatever you want to play. So I do play a couple of game theory songs and I play uh, uh, Centaur from the first Hex record, which is a fun song to play. Is there a possibility there could be a a record down the line that you, or that you just no point or might be fun? Uh, You know, uh, we, maybe, who knows? I don't know. I'm not writing it off as a possibility, but I'm not really focused on that either. So, Why Sturgeon? And they're such a fascinating, to me, they're so fascinating because people rarely talk about them. So what yeah. was it that attracted you oh. Sturgeon? Uh, the guy I wanted to work with, the professor, he had a great data set on Sturgeon movement for three years in one of the 
least uh, dammed rivers in North America. And so there were thousands of kilometers of, of undammed river that we could track the, they put in some, uh, you know, radio, they were transmitters so that they would get picked up if they passed a, a station. And so we could track their movements and uh, he had that data set and I was more kind of a a computer type person and it was a really large unwieldy data set. So he's like, I got a data set you can use as giant and painful and so I'm like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> so it and the sturgeon ended up being just a delightful creature to study. They're uh really very social since we're talking about social. There was a really interesting study that I read about sturgeon where they had uh they would have two sturgeon that were conspecific they knew each other, right? They were in, from the same tank. And then they also had some other fish. So that they would take the sturgeon out of the tank and they hooked it up to some things so that they could test the cortisol levels and sit it on the counter for a little while until it gets a little stressed. Then they would put it either back into the tank alone with a conspecific or with another fish that wasn't of its same species. And, and the ones that were with a friend they recovered significantly faster. So they are paying attention to each other and they comfort each other. And I just, I thought that was kind of neat. So they're this ancient species. And I guess it's inherent in us, deeply inherent, this cultural proclivity for being part of a cohesive group. I don't know if we got those same genes that the sturgeon did, but there's something that makes us feel safer and more comfortable when we're with our own species. I read somewhere that this is before all all the stuff went down, but um, well, I'm sure it still holds true. But that the highest rate of PTSD is in Israel. Oh, but the highest rate of PTSD being cured is also in Israel, and ah. right, and they were saying that it that it's due to the fact that everybody lives together, whether it's a kibbutz or there's a they're, oh, they're right. part of a community. Whereas say in the US, if you have trauma in war and you come home, you go to your bedroom, you go to, yes, you know, you're, there's an isolating thing. So what you're saying about the sturgeon and the restorative nature of, of being with people. With Quite people parallel to what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sturgeon, how big do they get? They get pretty large. Oh, right? they are fascinating. They can get 10 feet long. Um, they don't breed until the females don't breed until they're 13 years old. So uh, the they have a very long um, reproductive generation cycle. So uh, the males, I think they can breed from when they're about 10. But that's the reason that they're having such a hard time getting back to their previous populations because it just takes a really long time for a sturgeon to start reproducing. But they can get very big and they're also kind of an odd cross between uh, one of the bigger animals, 
so the the larger animals are key keystone species because they often will forage through the waters and and make trails and stuff like that but the sturgeon are bottom feeders too so they will with their little vacuum cleaner wolf up just debris and whatever so they're kind of at the bottom and the top of the of the animal hierarchy and it, it just makes them very weird i love them i'm crazy about them <laughs> they're cool they, they always make me a little bit sad because i always feel when they when one gets caught somewhere they always make it sound like it was this sort of monolithic mo thing that they pulled by itself um, and they always look so sad and awful to see that. And I wonder, do they travel in groups? Do they travel? Oh, yes. Oh, they yes, do. they do. Wow. Yes, okay. yes, they do. And But they also have differences, uh, behavioral differences. Some of them travel tons, like crazy distances. And some of them will just hunker down, like in the overwintering spot, like all the time. And they never leave. So they're they're just, they're fascinating individuals. And uh, I never even saw one, but I, I did pick one up on my uh, detector one time when we were out there. <laughs> I was like, I was like, hi, six three 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 six. So there are Nick Drake like sturgeon, and there are. Yes, others. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating. What what are you gonna um, continue studying the sturgeon? No, I, I'm I'm done with fish. I don't know if there there was some movie where that was a line. Um, Buckfish. That's from uh, adaptation. Oh yes, done with fish. So I am done with fish. <laughs> done with fish. I still love them, but I'm not going to study them anymore. I'm just uh, moved on. And what have you moved on to? What is your your latest obsession? Is the wrong word, but uh, I like. I like playing music again, so I'm back to music. And in fact, uh, I'm supposed to be at a rehearsal anytime soon here. Um, we'll get you <laughs> out of here a little late. But uh, we play. We just play, and I guess we will do like pet funerals or nursing homes, whatever. It's like anybody wants us to play. So I guess that's not really a great advertisement for myself, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's still well it's fun and we call ourselves the geese tones because we're all retired <laughs> but does it is it safe to say that you're happier than ever with music you feel this renewed relationship with it yeah i think i would say that absolutely yeah it doesn't feel quite as much of a burden uh it's just only the fun part and so that's really nice well i am so grateful that you did this thank you well, I am astonished that you're interested in what I have to say, and I just really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Get to practice and, and <laughs> stay in touch. Okay, thanks a million.
there you go. Donette Thayer, she felt like a friend. It was like talking to a pal. She was so cool. And I've wanted to interview her since I was like 17 years old. So, you know, I was patient. I waited. And uh, it happened. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And uh, she's just the best. Track her music down. Do you know it? You do. All right. So you're, you're on board. Oh, you don't? Track it down. Those of you who don't, find it. Game Theory, Hex, her solo album. I mean, you can't miss. She's the absolute greatest. Hey, you want to get in touch with me? Go ahead. Try it. See what happens. All right, back. I'm that kind of guy. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com is the email. Follow me on what's left of Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. And while I have you doing all this work, don't forget BombshellRadio.com is the place to visit to find out what makes our radio station tick. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Diviner by Hex. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. After the summer Find all the wells are drunk dry Miles and miles of stubborn Branded on the height of the night Slipping on the surface of our day